Well, hello again. This is Buck Penny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Zero Hour. This is our final presentation of the five-part episodes of Zero Hour. These five-part episodes are so unique in old-time radio history in that uh, more than anything else of in radio history, they remind me of the modern... Uh, books on CD that we have, uh, the audio books that we listen to when we hear a novel read to us by uh, multiple people, or uh, sometimes uh, one uh, narrator will read it to us. Uh, but in this case, the novels are kind of brought to life, and um, but in a five-part series, so it's the closest thing to uh, audiobooks that I can think of. And uh, what makes this series so unique, of course, is uh, Elliot Lewis did a brilliant job of bringing it to us and um, having the uh, some great actors in the process. Tonight's no, no exception. The other piece of it, of course, is Rod Serling, that this is the final things, um, one of his final projects, anyway, before he died. Um... Now we're getting into January of 1974, and Rod Serling would live until June of 1975. He would die just a few months after Jack. Anyway, tonight's episode features George Maharis. I think you pronounce it Maharis. And he, of course, starred with uh, Martin Milner on uh, Route 66, which was a... Uh, television series, that a long-running television series in the, I believe it started in the late 50s and ended in the early 60s. But they traveled around in their Corvette, and it's available, I, I know, on uh, DVD at this point. Uh, the other Another actor that's in this um, presentation tonight is Craig Stevens, who was a prolific actor, but um, was probably best known for playing Peter Gunn in the series of the same name. And so we have actually all three of our actors tonight are were in uh, were kind of the tough guys in their various roles. And uh, George Maharis that I was talking about earlier, he uh, continued acting throughout the seventies, eighties, nineties, and just kept, uh, he, he had a really good look, a uh, very masculine sort of look that um, would help him to get parts as uh, whether he, he looked, he could look like a doctor or a lawyer, um, but a very attractive man and uh, appeared in Playgirl or on the cover of Playgirl a number of times. I bumped into, as I was looking for pictures of him, I was finding pictures of Playgirl. I thought, I wouldn't show us Playgirl magazine. I think I'll go with TV Guide. But anyway, um, What's cool now with um, the way I'm doing my podcasts, if you go to my webpage at uh, www.buckbenny.com, then instead of being able to just post one picture, I can now post multiple pictures. Like for this show, I'll have pictures of... uh, I just decided to go with TV Guides since uh, they all had appeared on TV Guide, or most of them. uh, So I've got a a TV Guide with... um, the Route 66 guys, I got a TV guide with Peter Gunn, and a TV guide featuring um, Rod Serling, and so it's neat to 
bring you to bring you those great pictures all from from the covers of TV Guide. Um, the third person in our uh, episode tonight is uh, Charles McGraw, and Charles McGraw was famous for being in a lot of um, the noir, uh, noir uh, shows that were um, movies from the what the forties and the fifties, and uh, a lot of acting roles on television as well. Um, Anyway, I'm sure you'll recognize his voice when you hear it. He had a couple television series of his own, too. I can't remember them off the top of my head. But anyway, let's hope you enjoy tonight's episode. And the series then, after this, would change. It still continued on. But uh, they would take an actor, like, say, William Shatner, and feature him five consecutive nights, Monday through Friday, but instead of it being a continuing story, it would be uh, five self-contained stories, which was an interesting idea in and of itself. I mean, Elliot Lewis just is full of all kinds of interesting ideas of what you can do with um, radio and different ways to present actors and shows. Uh, but those shows don't hold up as well, in my opinion, because... Being as they're only a half hour long, and they have to have space for commercials, they really end up being like 20, about 20 minutes long. I think some of them might only be 18. And it's hard to tell a complete story in that length of time. And so the stories suffer because of it. I think uh, his later series, Elliot Lewis's later series that I brought this summer, the Sears uh, Radio Theater, had uh, 40, 40 or so minute episodes, and that gave them the time to breathe and where you can really get into the characters and so forth. So, anyway, I hope you enjoyed our presentations this summer. We're heading off into our regular season, pretty much. A lot of episodes, a lot of shows are already starting. We had, uh, this week, we had uh, My Favorite Husband with Lucille Ball start up. Fibber McGee and Molly from the 1939 season start up. And uh, next week, uh, we'll be having our uh, first episodes of the season of the Jack Benny Show. But tonight, a very special Jack Benny Show, so tune in to hear our, our special presentation that I don't think anyone's ever done before. Um, anyway, tune in for that, and uh, we shall see you around, maybe bring you those um, half hours, zero hours sometime in the future. But for now, uh, we're signing off with the 13th of, of the 13th. Um, five-part zero hours, and I'm glad that Elliot Lewis and Rod Serling and all these wonderful actors brought them to us. So enjoy this very last one. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. 
This week, Merwin Girard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis. Craig Stevens. And Charles McGraw. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Our story this week is a case for rebuttal of the old adage, dead men tell no tales. It's the story of Carl Brooks, a young man, a practicing lawyer, one of two junior district attorneys under political zealot Lloyd Mercer. It will be Carl Brooks's misfortune to be asked to perform a favor by and for his mentor, misfortune that begins with murder and proliferates over a life reborn and a span of four years' time. His initial chance discovery and subsequent smoldering guilt will prove to be the driving catalytic force to spirit him back to the scene of the crime. A dead man knows the truth. And for Carl Brooks, a mission of repentance and search for that truth will lead him to peel back the layers of deceit and uncover what we can only call dead man's tale. Our story begins after this word. Picture this, dusk of a late autumn day in a seemingly typical Midwestern city of 300,000. In the office of District Attorney Lloyd Mercer, the day's work is winding to a close. The secretary has gone home, leaving two young men to their game of darts in the outer office. Bullseye! How about that shot, Barry? Ah, no, no, good, Carl. You stepped over the line. Now, come on, Barry. You're not going to take a hundred points from me over an imaginary line, are you? Carl Brooks and Barry Wilson, both 24 years old, close friends and Lloyd Mercer's junior DAs. Gentlemen, who's winning? You are, Chief, if the latest figures in the polls are right. Yes, they were very encouraging. Come to the office. Encouraging? 57% for you, 36% for all the other candidates combined, 7% undecided. And less than a week to go, you're a shoo-in for another term. I never count votes until election night. Which one of you can spare me a small favor this evening? I have to get home and change for that rally. Well, I still have some work on the Bostwick brief, uh, and you'll need it first thing tomorrow. Right. And you've also got a family awaiting dinner. Which, by the process of elimination, leaves the bachelor with a clear desk. Okay, what can I do for you, Chief? Barry, would you close the door on your way out? Hmm? Oh, sure thing. Carl, I want you to go to the Delta Hotel and pick up an attaché case for me. The man's name is Robert Henley. He'll be expecting you. He's in room 515. When you get it, bring it straight to me at election headquarters. I'll need those documents tonight before the rally. Now, I'm off with you. Yes, sir. Uh, good luck tonight, Mr. Mercer. What could go wrong? I'm addressing our 57%. 
I left the office and took a cab to the Delta Hotel. The desk clerk waved as I walked by, and I told the elevator man, fifth floor. The door to room 515 was, oddly, not quite closed. Mr. Henley? It's Carl Brooks from uh, Lloyd Mercer's office. Mr. Henley? Mr. Henley, I... Mr. Henley. Hey. What? What? Oh, my God. Uh, Hello, uh, main desk. Get me the... Cute. What? But not cute enough. Harris, what are you doing here? No need to ask what you're doing, is there? Uh, Calling the Red Cross, maybe? Donating blood? This man's dead. Oh, that's very good, Counselor. Very good indeed. I'll take that money now. What? Come on, come on. It's too late for games. You're out of your league, Sonny. What are you talking about? You think I killed him? Fancy that. Tell you what, just hand over the cash and I'll forget I saw you here. You can run and maybe you can beat the murder rap. Now, wait a minute. This is insane. Not insane, just stupid. But then you couldn't know I make it a habit to keep my eye on my investments. Your, your investments? Look, I, I don't have any idea of what you're talking about, Ferris, but I'm going You're to... not going to do anything or go anywhere until you cough up that hundred and fifty grand. A hundred and fifty... Get out of my way, Ferris. Sorry. The money, Brooks. Hand it over or I'll... Get... Lloyd Mercer, please. It's urgent. Carl? Uh, sir? You're lucky I'm still here, boy. Where are you? What's the matter? Everything's the matter. Robert Henley is dead. What? I'm sorry, Carl. I, I couldn't hear you. What did you say? Robert Henley. He's dead. What? Uh, I went up to his room and found him on the floor. His throat. It was cut from ear to ear. What about the attaché case? Well, it was still handcuffed to his wrist, but it was broken open and it was empty. There's all $150,000 worth of documents. Mr. D.A., are you there? You'd better get over here right away, Carl. Joe Farris was there. He saw me in the room. He thinks I killed Henley. Well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. He said there was money involved. Where is he now? Well, Farris? He's still up there. I don't know. I, I, I don't plan to be around when he comes to. I had to hit him to get out. Come over to headquarters. I have to see you. Well, everyone else has. Farris, the desk clerk, the elevator man, my fingerprints. They're all over that room. Carl, I'll explain, but not over the phone. 
Well, just explain two things to me. $150,000 and one dead man. You get over here, Brooks. Now. Right now. Mercer? Mercer! Taxi! Taxi! Carl! Hey, Carl, where are you going? The chief told me to pick you up, man. Carl! The airport. And move! Carl! It was sheer, blind panic that made me take the first westbound plane out of town. After all, I was innocent, regardless of how it looked. But it looked like a setup, with me, dead center in the frame. When the plane landed, I bought a hometown paper. The story of Henley's murder was all over the front page. Carl Brooks was a wanted man. I dumped the paper in the trash can and moved on, and on, from town to town. The days ran into weeks and then months, I... I never read anything more or heard about it. I didn't want to know. Guilt is not always something that can be determined in a court of law. I had to establish a new life if I was to survive, beginning with a new name, Charles Barrows. A three-day construction job brought me into a small central town in California, the town of Coulter. I stayed four years, growing with the town. I enrolled in a real estate school where I met Jenny Duncan. We studied together. And in four years, our friendship blossomed into something far greater. Be right there, Jen. How's my land baron doing today? Fine, let's go. Where? Anywhere. Just just drive somewhere. All right. Rough day at the office? Not really. You sure had me fooled, Charles Barrows. What? What do you mean? Honey, all I meant was you're terribly cranky today. Oh. I'm... I'm sorry, Jenny. I, I didn't mean to take it out on you. I mean, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Believe me. Let's let's go to the lake. We've always been able to say what we mean there. All right. See the circle the pebble makes in the water? I bet you can't throw one inside it. I thought we came here to say what we meant. What is it, Charles? Oh. 
Well, uh, a man came in today. He, he was interested in a piece of property over by Golden Valley. I was showing him the brochure when he... He said he thought he'd seen me somewhere before. Well, that is possible. Coulter isn't San Francisco. He just moved here from the Midwest. He probably thought you were someone else. Like Carl Brooks. Who? Charles, what are you not telling me? Jenny, do you know how much I love you? I mean, how much you mean to me? Four years ago, a man was killed in the town I grew up in. Carl Brooks worked for the district attorney at the time. He found the body, but that's all he did. But it was somehow made to look like he was a suspect, the prime suspect. What happened to him? Well, he disappeared. And you have the same color hair, right? We're one and the same. I don't believe it. Well, it's true. And if it weren't, well, I'd have proposed marriage a long time ago. Charles. My conscience wouldn't allow me to ask. I mean, I... I'd give up anything for you, Jenny. I, I, I would, and, and I will. Well, what does it all mean? Well, I've decided to give myself up. I'm going back, Jenny. To clear myself, clear my name. What happens to us? I love you, whoever you are. I'm going with you. Uh, no, no, you, you mustn't. Please, Jenny. I mean, it's painful as it is. But what if you said you were innocent? Oh, I was weak then. I was a coward. I couldn't have fought the law, even though they were wrong. But it's different now. I have something to fight for. And that's exactly what I plan to do. Two hours by air back to the city where I'd lived most of my life. But it seemed an eternity until the plane touched down at the airport. The moment I stepped under the ground, the feeling of guilt returned. Hundreds of people in that city knew me by sight. And if I was picked up before I had the chance to turn myself in, it would be impossible to prove I came back to give myself up. Voluntarily, that is. A taxi, mister? Yes. Where to? Uh, the county offices. Right. Driver, would you happen to know, is, uh, is Lloyd Mercer still the district attorney? Not since the election last month. We got a new one. Name it Jameson. Oh, I see. Then Mercer won a second term and was defeated this year. No. Mercer didn't run for DA this year. The way I hear it, Jameson's his boy. Mercer ran for Superior Court. Judge? Judge Mercer? Yeah, another landslide. They're saying he'll run for governor next time. That Mercer's got one smooth machine. Yeah. Well, he's the one I want to see. Well, that'll be the courthouse. Good afternoon, Judge Mercer's chambers. Just a moment, please. Your Honor, there's a Mr. Alan Bledsoe calling. On line one, sir. Yes, sir. Can I help you? 
Yes, I'd like to see Judge Mercer, please. Your name, please? Brooks. Uh, Carl Brooks. I'm afraid you'll have to make an appointment, Mr. Brooks. Would tomorrow afternoon be satisfactory? Look, I have to see him right away. The judge is a very busy man. Could you please tell him I'm here? All right, I'll ring in, but... Judge, there's a Mr. Brooks out here, and he insists... Yes, Carl Brooks. Yes, sir. He said to go right in, Mr. Brooks. Carl, how are you? Well, don't just stand there. Sit down. Tell me, how have you been? What have you been doing? What brings you back to our fair city? I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I, I came back to give myself up. Give yourself Oh, what you mean, the Henley murder? Of course. Oh, that's marvelous. You mean you've been thinking all these years... What is it now, almost five? You've been worried, hiding? Carl, there's no charge against you. No ch- But I read in the paper. I mean, the, the day after it happened that I was the prime suspect. You were, for a couple of hours. It was open and shut, Carl. The murderer was apprehended, tried, convicted, and executed. We still had the death penalty then. You mean... You mean all this this time, the running, the, the changing my name, giving up my law career, living with fear that at any time... For, for nothing? I mean, it was, it was all for nothing? I am sorry, Carl, but if you hadn't run... I'm free? You mean, I'm free? As the proverbial bird, Carl... But I hope this doesn't mean you're going to fly away before we've had a chance to have dinner together, or at least a drink. Look, um, can I make a phone call first? You're welcome to use my phone. No, no, thank you. No, it's it's long distance and, and personal. I, I've got a question to spring on a young lady. My premature congratulations. A local girl? No, 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 California. Maybe it all turned out for the best. I mean, if I hadn't left, I... I never would have met Jenny. But you won't leave town without saying goodbye. Judge, you have my solemn oath. You sure, darling? Absolutely sure. <laughs> That's what the man said. Look, I'll be on my way now, but uh, there just isn't a plane leaving for the coast until tomorrow. I'll come there if you like. No, 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 no. Don't you dare. I'm coming home for life. Oh, Carl. I have to get used to calling you Carl. Look, I'm going to check into a hotel, and then I'll pick up some of my things and, well, maybe have a drink with Mercer or whoever before I leave. Mrs. Carl Brooks. Jennifer Brooks. I like the sound of it. Hey, <laughs> you're not listening. Oh, yes, I am. You're coming home. See you tomorrow, love. Goodbye. Bye. Carl? Is that Carl Brooks? Hugo. Hugo! Wow, you look great. I mean, it's really been a long time. Are you still with the Chronicle? How the hell are you? Can't complain. Up till now. What happened? Mercer bring you back to run his next campaign? Hugo. I wasn't notified of any high school class reunion. Hugo, come on now. Why are you riding me? How'd you like the trial? Well, believe it or not, today's the first I've heard of it. I mean, all along, I thought that, you know... You're a long time late. Late? For what? Barry Wilson, for one. Barry? What about him? I mean, I was just going to call him. 
I'm afraid they don't have phone service where Barry is. Where is he? You don't know? You really don't know? No. Barry was executed for Henley's murder. Barry? Well, that, that's impossible. Oh, was it? But, no, 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 that's not possible. I mean, I, I saw him. I mean, he was just arriving at the hotel after Henley was dead. That's what Barry kept saying, that he had a perfect alibi. You. But, but the trial, Hugo. He, he was, he was convicted. Because you were running, because you weren't here to testify for him. He kept saying, Carl will come back and prove I'm innocent. But Carl was running to save his own skin. And Mercer needed a quick arrest to assure his re-election as DA. Barry was the perfect pigeon. But a jury doesn't convict without him. I mean, they must have had some evidence. And you keep telling yourself that if it's any comfort. Sure, Mercer built up a case and made it stick because Barry's only witness couldn't be found. You see, I, I thought I was the one they were looking for. If you were innocent, why'd you run? Hmm? Or maybe you weren't. You said yourself Barry couldn't have done it. Barry's dead? Wow. What about Ellen and, and their little girl? Oh, they're doing fine. Just fine. Ellen's adjusted to life as a widow. And the kids at school make it wonderful for little Katie. Oh, but don't let it bother you, Carl. Hm. Obviously, it hasn't so far. Send him a card after you leave. Goodbye, Carl. Have a wonderful life. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Dead Man's Tale. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Dead Man's Tale was written by Mervyn Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis is Carl. Craig Stevens is Mercer. And Charles McGraw is Ferris. Featured in the cast are Byron Kane, Anne Marshall, Catherine Grody, and Herbert Jefferson, Jr., Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weiskopf, story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour.
the Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Merwin Girard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis. Craig Stevens. And Charles McGraw. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Carl Brooks was a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. He arrived at a downtown hotel, per instructions, to pick up a locked attache case for his boss, District Attorney Lloyd Mercer only to find an empty case and a dead man. Seen in the room and falsely accused, Carl Brooks, a man in a panic, chose to run. Four years later, in a town far away, this same man, haunted by the past and the lie his new life had become, made still another choice, to return and face whatever the charge, whatever the consequences. He returned to find all charges against him dropped, The case was history. But for Carl Brooks, the consequences were immense. His closest friend had been judged guilty and executed. The only man who could have saved him was absent from the trial. That man had run. That man was Carl Brooks. Our story, Dead Man's Tale, resumes after this message. Hugo left me standing in the hotel lobby like I was nailed to the floor. Barry Wilson and I had been friends since... since before I could remember. We'd done everything together, school, baseball. I even introduced him to Ellen. Now, Barry was dead. Executed by the state for a crime he did not commit. And there was nothing I could do to bring him back. I had returned to my hometown for a purpose, to clear myself of any guilt. I never dreamt how terribly guilty I really was. I understand how awful you must feel, but what can you do? I'm not sure, Jenny. I I only know there's Ellen and her little girl, and they don't pay widow's benefits to the wife of a man convicted of a capital crime. I've got to do something for them I should have done four years ago. Prove Barry's innocence. It's the least I can do. All right, but Carl, you sound as if you feel guilty. I am. No, you're not. You didn't kill anybody. Neither did Barry. Oh, Carl, don't do this to yourself. What happened is unfair, and I'm not asking you to do nothing about righting a wrong, but... Jenny, 
please, just give me a little time. I mean, what I said before still goes. This is something I have to do before we can have a decent life together. Does that mean you want me to stay here in Coulter? For now, yes. Do you understand why? I'm trying to. All any of us can do is try. Goodbye, darling. Goodbye, darling. I didn't know exactly how or where to start. From the beginning seemed like the logical place. I checked into the Delta Hotel, and then I arranged to meet Lloyd Mercer at the Skylight Lounge. Well, Carl, what's it going to be? Dinner or just a quick drink? I've canceled my reservation. Oh? I thought you had a young lady breathlessly awaiting your return. Well, uh, that was before I found out what happened to Barry Wilson. I hope you spare you that. Terribly unfortunate, unpleasant all around. But, but what's it got to do with your changing your plan? Barry was innocent. He had a jury trial, Carl. He was convicted. But who prosecuted the case? It was my job. Oh. Not a happy one under the circumstances. But I had no choice but to prosecute without fear or favor. Well, did he tell you I saw him at the Delta Hotel that he was arriving five minutes after I found the body? So he claimed. Well, it's true. Since we couldn't find you, I weighed the possibility that it might have been true. You didn't believe him? It gave me pause. But then I realized he could have come back to the hotel after killing Henley so that you could see him just arriving to be his alibi if he needed one. As matters developed, I'm certain that that was the case. But he shouted to me as I was running for a taxi that, that you had asked him to meet me there. Yes, he made that allegation at the trial. Untrue, of course. Why would I do that? I don't know. All I, all I heard him say was that the chief sent him. Not much of advance. Well, I guess not. Just one man's word against another. Don't be petty, Carl. It doesn't suit you. Look, was there any hard evidence against Barry? I could let you have the transcript if you like. But briefly, motive. He was rather deeply in debt. An opportunity... He obviously listened on the inner office intercom to my instructions to you about picking up the attaché case from Henley. We both know that he left the office considerably ahead of you. Yes, but... but he was going home. I mean, Judge, you knew Barry. Naturally, he claimed that he'd never heard of Henley, so we'll never know. Were there any fingerprints? Only yours and Henley. A murderer would have been more careful. Barry couldn't account for his movements just prior to or during the time of the murder. He had 500 in cash he couldn't explain. And then the bald-faced lie about my sending him to the hotel. Wasn't there anything else? It's all in the transcript, if, if you're that interested. But why are we, we retrying the case now, Carl? Your Honor, I don't think Barry Wilson killed Robert Henley. Really? Perhaps you should have been public defender, champion of the lost Look, I'm, I'm serious, Judge. I mean, let's assume Barry did listen in. A fair assumption. Maybe he didn't go straight home. And went instead to the Delta Hotel. Or he could have gone almost anywhere. Why not here, for a cocktail? Because he went straight to the Delta Hotel, room 515, and murdered Robert Henley. But why? I mean, motive, he had Carl, no reason motive. to. The man needed money. No motive, Judge. I mean... It was documents I was sent there for. There was never any mention of money. I suggest you read the transcript. Look, was there any money? I, I was never clear on that. None that was ever recovered, nor were the documents, for that matter. Could have cost me the election. Barry was guilty. Take my word for it. 
You can go back to your new life with a clear conscience. It was good seeing you again, Carl. I see. Case dismissed. Goodbye, Carl. I was just leaving. Thanks for your time, Your Honor. Lloyd Mercer had offered little in the way of information about the trial. That was to be expected. Motive. That was the fatal flaw in the case for the prosecution. A man was murdered for something he was carrying in an attaché case, documents or money or both, and in four years there had been no trace of either. Barry was railroaded, but by whom? And had that been the master plan from the beginning? More likely... Barry was merely a convenient second choice, a substitute for me. I had terribly mixed emotions about my next move. I had to talk to Ellen Wilson, Barry's widow. She had been Ellen Upshaw when we'd first met, the prettiest girl in the whole junior class. We went together almost until graduation. Quite the campus couple we were. Then one day, after a football game, I introduced her to the star halfback. That was Barry Wilson. They were married the week after commencement. Two years later, Katie. Katie was born. I took a taxi to the modest two-bedroom tract home the Wilsons had bought the year before Barry's execution. It was just as I'd remembered it, only the lawn was now overgrown with weeds. Up close, I could see the paint was peeling, and one of the windows had been broken and been repaired with only cardboard and a tape. Wasn't the same. Nothing was. Don't believe it. Hello, Ellen. What do you want here? Can we talk? Now? Four years later, you want to talk? Ellen, it's important. May I come in? All right. Thank you. I have nothing to say to you. You don't mind if I stand. I won't be long. Why, Carl? Why did you come back? Why now? Why ever? You're too late. Barry's dead. I know. Hugo Brownell told me about it. I... I, I, I just didn't know. You didn't know? The biggest, most sensational trial in the history of the state? You say you didn't know? Well, that's the truth. Keep your voice down. The baby's asleep. Katie? Yes, Katie. It wasn't time for another, damn you. She's really not a baby anymore. No, she must be eight years old. Yes. And her father's been dead half her life. Don't you think I know that? Don't you know it's been eating up my insides just, just to think about it? Ellen, I came back to prove I didn't kill that man. Didn't you? Well, if I had, would I have come back at all? Barry didn't kill him, Carl. And he can't come back. I know. I, I know. Now, go away. Leave us alone. Not until I prove Barry was innocent. Well, 
good would that do now? Look at me. Take a good look. These aren't laugh lines around my eyes. It's anguish. You want to go to school with Katie? She could show you to the class and tell them who you are. Ellen, I'm not asking for forgiveness. I just want to know what really happened. I've got to start somewhere. Did did Barry say anything to you about money? Money? I mean, did he ever hear of a... Uh... Money? You want to know about money? Wait right here. Let me show you something, mister. Go back to bed, honey. Mommy will be right in. Here. Take a look at that. Hmm. Cashier's check for a hundred dollars. I get one every month. Without fail. Who sends it? I don't know. Who makes deposits into my bank account? Every time my balance falls below $50, another 50 is deposited automatically and anonymously. Haven't you tried to find out? Oh, yes. At first. And got nowhere. Then I thought, what if asking too many questions should shut it off? How would I pay all the extras the little money I was earning didn't cover? Then I lost my job. Now it's two days' work here, an afternoon there. Nothing for weeks on end. Ellen... This means that somebody... I mean, this is obviously conscience money. Blood money. And who pays Dr. Irwin for me? Two operations in the past three years. Hospital bills. Katie's tonsils. Ellen, I think there's a real chance that I can clear Barry's name. You mean you can stir things up? Get it all in the newspapers and on television again. Ruin what little we have left. But if I could force them to reopen the case... And if they don't find the guilty party... Well, I have to do something. Don't you think you've done enough? Leave it alone. Oh, Carl, I, I thought I knew you so well. I never really knew you at all. Go. Go back where you came from. Leave us alone. Ellen was right, of course, about what would happen if I succeeded in bringing it all to public attention again. On the other hand, if I could gather information, get some answers of my own, and then come forward with the facts, I might accomplish a great deal for Ellen and Katie, at least in terms of security, but how much of it would be for her and how much for myself to soothe my own conscience? Three unsolved M's, money, motive, and murder. According to the learned judge, Barry was in debt. That was something I hadn't known and didn't think it proper to ask Ellen about. Gambling is illegal in the state, but everyone knows it goes on, appropriately disguised. I took a taxi back to town to pay a visit to just such an establishment, and an old acquaintance I had last seen at the Hotel Delta sprawled on the floor. If anybody would know about money, he would. Well, there it is, just up ahead. Uh, the one with all the lights flashing? Well, that's where I want to go. You sure? The Ferris wheel's the most expensive nice spot in town. I mean, there's better places to eat and a lot cheaper, too. Well, you see, I'm not hungry. 
I get it. Back room, huh? Yeah, you got it. Well, lots of luck, buddy. You'll need it back there. You'd be better off eating, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Hey, keep it. Hey, thanks. Good evening, sir. Do you have a reservation? I want to ride on the, the merry-go-round. Your name, sir? Uh, Wilson. A gentleman to ride the merry-go-round. Mr. Wilson. Uh, Barry Wilson. Barry Wilson. Hmm? As you wish, sir. Down the hall, this key opens the door on the right. Thank you. Always the lemon, isn't it? You can do better at craps or roulette. I'm not really a gambling man, Cyrus. Oh, I thought you were. Can we talk in private? My office private enough? Fine. You've changed your name, I see. Yeah, several times. You don't seem surprised to see me. Oh, I've been expecting you. Mercer called you. Let's just say I heard that Carl Brooks was back in town. I figured you might drop in for ginger ale. No, no, it would be watered down. Still cute, huh, Brooks? Look, you got lucky once. I don't take kindly to people punching me out. My jaw was real tender for a while. Couldn't eat steak for a week. You know, uh, I could call in a few of my boys and have them punch you out. Or I could do it myself. What's stopping you? Maybe I've mellowed. Maybe you'd just as soon I left town, quietly. Like I said, Brooks, you got lucky once. Now, don't push it. You mind if I sit down? No, no, be my guest. But don't get too comfortable. You'll be leaving soon. You know... You sure have a nice place here, Farris. You must really rake it in. All right, cute guy. What's on your mind? Barry Wilson. What about him? I understand he used to ride the merry-go-round and couldn't pay for the tickets. Well, you can't collect from a dead man. I seem to recall you saying one time how you like to keep an eye on your investments. By the way, whatever happened to all the money... What money? The 150000 Henley was killed for. Keep dreaming, Brooks. That was documents the stiff had on him. Do you have any idea who's sending Ellen Wilson $100 documents every month? I think it's about time you cashed in your chips, punk. A smart gambler quits when the odds are against him. You know, Ferris, if I didn't know you to be a, a solid citizen, I'd say that sounded like a threat. Oh, no, no threat. A promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't bother to get up. I can find my way out. Ferris was lying. Of that I was sure. There was money all right. The night of the murder, Ferris had been in the room the same time I was, but I didn't hear him come in. He could have killed Henley, stolen the money, and waited for me to arrive. Of course, a hired killer was a possibility. Joe Ferris was certainly not one to stick his own neck out, like I was doing. 
What really puzzled me was the money Ellen was getting. I couldn't see Ferris giving money away for any reason, and Lloyd Mercer? Well, I was sure convinced he had no conscience at all. I had nothing to go on but a hunch, and I needed help. I headed straight for the red and white neon lights of the Chronicle building. The heavy glass doors were locked. I could see a uniformed guard inside. Yes, is uh, Hugo Brownell working tonight? Yeah, but not here. He's out on a story somewhere. Well, is there any way I can get in touch with him? I mean, it's very important. I'll see him when he comes back. Mm. Well, uh, will he be back tonight? Hugo? Uh, to write up the story, sure. Well, would you have him call me at the Delta Hotel? The name is Brooks. It doesn't matter how late, just so he calls. Would you tell him that? Brooks, Delta Hotel, right? Right. I took a sandwich with me up to the room at the hotel so I wouldn't miss Hugo's call. I ate slowly to make the time go faster. One, two, three o'clock. I scraped up the last of the crumbs with a wet finger at 3.30. Still no call. I crumpled up the wax paper from the sandwich and tried a ten-foot set shot at the waste paper basket. I missed. That was Barry's favorite shot on the basketball court. Ten feet out along the baseline... Every time. Then, thoughts of Jenny swept over me like a veil of stardust, and I began to wonder if what I was doing was really worth it. Why was I compelled to be where I was, away from her? It was all so frustrating and becoming dangerous. Boy, a man's conscience is a powerful force. Yuga had to have returned by now. I was pretty sure he had gotten the message, and I had gotten his. If it's help you want, count me out. Carl Brooks, you're on your own. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, Dead Man's Tale. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Dead Man's Tale was written by Merwin Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis is Carlo. Craig Stevens is Mercer. And Charles McGraw is Ferris. Featured in the cast are Anne Marshall, Angela Cartwright, Dick Whittington, and Herbert Jefferson, Jr. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes and listen here.
to the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Merwin Gerard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis, Craig Stevens, and Charles McGraw. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Guilt is not something that can always be determined in a court of law. One must first consider the source. Carl Brooks is a man well acquainted with guilt. It drove him first from his home, then drew him back and into a situation for which he was totally unprepared. His best friend had been convicted and executed for murder. Only Carl's testimony could have saved him. So the guilt is now a matter of omission, a matter of moral negligence. And for Carl Brooks, the guilt is more imposing than ever. The man he left behind, in turn, left a widow and child. Someone is sending them money. Carl Brooks would like to find out who and why. Dead Man's Tale continues after this word. I watched the sun come up over the city from my hotel window. The first light of day peaked over the eastern horizon at five o'clock, then fanned out over the stockyards, the industrial section, and crept into downtown. By 5.30, sunlight glistened off the facings of glass skyscrapers. The street lamps shut off. The morning edition hit the newsstands. City buses rolled down the avenues from dark to dawn to day. Hadn't shut my eyes or my mind all night. If I was to accomplish anything this day, I would first have to freshen up. A weary face with dark circles under the eyes peered out at me from the medicine chest mirror. Oh, come on. 
Can't believe it. This is Mr. Brooks in room 610. What happened to the water? Or doesn't that come with the price of the room? I'm terribly sorry, sir. We've had some trouble with the boilers, and we've temporarily shut off all the water in the east wing. That's just great. How do you propose your paying guests wash? We hope to have the service restored sometime this afternoon, sir. What about the west wing? Actually, sir, you're better off where you are. We'll be shutting off the water on the other side after the noon hour today. We're sorry for the inconvenience. Uh, we have a repair crew working full-time. Yeah, well, um, I'd like another room. As you wish, sir. West Wing? Yes, West Wing. I can give you a fifth-floor suite. It's $5 a day more than you pay in that. Well, I'll, I'll take it. Very well, sir. It's room 519. Yes, oh, wait a minute. Uh, your rooms are separated by odd and even numbers, right? Yes, sir. Well, I'd like room uh, 515. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We have no room 515. No 515? No, sir. We converted that room to storage space four years ago. I see. Uh, 519 will be fine, then. Very good, sir. I'll transfer your bill starting today. Clerk, yes. were there any calls for me after midnight? One moment. No, no messages at all, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you. I took the elevator down to the lobby and exchanged the keys. So, 515 was only used for storage now. That had been for four years. Very strange coincidence. A man is killed in the room, another man is condemned for murder and rushed off to meet his maker, and suddenly, the scene of the crime no longer exists. Five twenty-five. Mm -hmm. Five twenty-three. Twenty-one. Uh, here it is. Five nineteen. I wonder. Uh huh. Just as he said. No room number. Storage. Employees only. I showered, shaved, and had a light breakfast in the coffee shop before leaving the hotel. I needed mobility for the errands I had to run, so I rented a late model sedan from an auto agency. I phoned the Chronicle and tried to reach Hugo again. But he was out on still another story. Either that, or his secretary was told to say he was. Ellen Wilson's financial status was foremost in my mind. Nameless donations and free medical care. Dr. Frank Irwin might be able to shed some light on the subject, I thought. I drove to County General Hospital to find him. Dr. Irwin was in County General, all right, as a patient. The previous night, he had run his car into a telephone pole and had suffered minor injuries. Fortunately, I arrived during visiting hours, and the nurse told me that Dr. Irwin had uh, been lightly sedated, but I could see him for a short time. Edna, I'm sorry. I should have been more careful. Uh, Dr. Irwin? Oh. Oh. 
I thought you were Edna. She's been away visiting her sister. My name is Carl Brooks. I see. I thought you were... Edna's my wife. She's been after me to get some rest, day off once in a while. Are you, uh, you from the police? No, sir. See, I had a little accident with the car last night. Oh. I fell asleep at the wheel. Unspeakable for a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you feeling better? I can't feel a thing. Wonder drugs, we call them. You? You look familiar. You one of my patients from long ago? No, sir. I'm Carl Brooks from long ago. Oh, I, of course. I heard you were back. Hasn't everyone? I'm so glad you're here. Well, that's a switch. I'm afraid I don't understand. You are the man who's helping Ellen Wilson, aren't you? Well, I'm, um... Oh, I'm I, a friend of her... I know all about you, Mr. Brooks. Oh? I want to do all I can to help you. Say, would you mind bringing me that pitcher of water right there? Oh. Can't seem to work up a spit. <laughs> Ah, thank you. I don't want to dry up before I say what has to be said. Doctor, Ellen Wilson is one of your patients, isn't she? Has been, ever since she first moved here. Must have been, oh, near 10, 15 years ago. When she got married and had the baby, I became what we... (laughs) what we used to call a family doctor. Have you been sending Ellen Wilson money? Money? No, that must be one of the others. Others? Please, the water. Oh, yeah. Uh, What others? Well, I don't know who they are. I think the man who runs the big gambling club in town is one of them. Joe Farris. Yeah, that's who I mean, Joe Farris. He's a horrible man. Doctor, I don't want to sound like a lawyer. I mean, I've given that up, but... If you don't know who the others are, would you know why anyone is sending Ellen Wilson money? I'm a doctor, Mr. Brooks. My sworn duty, my sacred obligation to save lives. I committed a breach of honor four years ago in a court of law. Because I was afraid of the disgrace, I... Well, I did nothing to prevent the execution of an innocent man. Barry Wilson. That's right. Could you have saved him? Perhaps. (laughs) No. The point is, I didn't even try. Oh, that's fine. Well, what could you have done or said? Well, I don't know why I ever got involved. Edna begged me not to. She's always right about that sort of thing. Very sound thinker, my wife. Doctor, what was this involvement? Oh, ambition, pride, vanity. I wanted to be commissioner of health. And I consoled myself that everybody did it. Did what? Paid for political favors. There was this Farris and myself and two others. I have no idea who they are. But we each contributed a large sum of cash to a special fund for the re-election of Lloyd Mercer. Of course... It was so obvious, it never occurred to me. That was why Mercer never admitted to there being money in the attaché case. It would have blown his legal eagle image sky high. The fact that I had been a very real part of his political machine turned my stomach. So, you see, Mr. Brooks, I isolated the hypocrite in Hippocrates. And that's what Henley was carrying. It would seem so. There was never any proof. The subject never came up. 
Well, I understand what Ferris was paying for, protection, but certainly Commissioner of Health isn't appointed by the district attorney. Oh, Lloyd Mercer, as we've seen, was headed for bigger things. His political influence extended in all directions, and I was convinced he could deliver. Obviously, so were the others. I understand there was $150,000 in that briefcase. I couldn't say. My contribution was 30000 And you have no idea who else may have known about this special fund? As far as I know, only Mercer and the four contributors. Well, what about Henley? I mean, where did he come in? I never met the man. I understand he was from out of state. Well, I presume he was chosen as a go-between because he had no connection with any of us. Including Mercer? Especially Mercer. Uh-huh. I presume Mercer sent you to pick up the lock case so there'd never be any visible connection between himself and Henley as a precaution against precisely the sort of thing that happened. I don't know. It seems so unnecessarily complicated. Has it occurred to you that whoever murdered Henley might be one of the contributors? I know there were four of us, and not one came forward. Farris wasn't even at the trial. Doctor, do you believe Barry Wilson was innocent? I believed it throughout the course of the trial, the appeals, up to the moment of his execution. I believe it as I lie here now. And I stood by and let him die. Doctor, from what you've told me, you were not the only one. Well, Mr. Brooks, man has only to live at peace with himself. I know that better than anyone. I assume that all of Ellen Wilson's medical expenses through the years... Oh, yes. I was grateful for the opportunity. It helped. A little... You've helped a lot, Doctor. You get well now, and uh, I'll be in touch. All right. I left the hospital and headed for the National City Bank, Ellen Wilson's branch. It didn't take me long to notice I was being followed. A big maroon late model touring car was smoking along behind me, obviously tracking too obvious to be anything but a message from Joe Farris. Looking in my rearview window, I could see two men in the car with the brims of their hats pulled low over their foreheads. It would have been funny if it weren't so frightening. And I was sure that was the purpose. To scam me into running. I had done it once before. Why not again? But uh, Dr. Irwin had answered that for me. A man has only to live at peace with himself. And I was determined to achieve that end. I stopped in front of the bank. Ferris's thugs drove on. They knew where I was going and who I wanted to see. We were all beginning to understand each other all too well. I began to feel the need for some protection of a different kind. Dead men tell no tales. It was time to leak some information to the press. City desk. Brownell here. Hugo, I waited all night for your call. Oh, what do you want? Look, I uh, I think a lot more went on in the Henley case than we were led to believe. We were led to believe? Now, now come on, Hugo. I mean, just, just give me a chance. Just hear me out. Look, I'm interested in facts. Hard facts. Something I can put in print. Well, I've learned enough in one day to know that you were right about Barry being framed and about the political setup in this town. So? Now, there's two of us. Look, uh, I want to talk to you. 
Do you or don't you have something I can print without risking a libel suit? Well, look, I, I will in about 15 minutes. I'll listen when you do. I'm much too busy now for idle conversation, so you can uh, just... Look, uh, Hugo, wait. No, wait. I, I've just got to see you. Today, in an hour. In an hour. I think we'll find something in, in the back issue of the Chronicle. I'll meet you there. Carl? Carl! Ah, damn it. Surely I'll be in the morgue. The one with the dead papers. May I be of service, sir? Yes. I'd like to speak to the branch manager. Well? Go ahead. I'm waiting. Oh. I'm Joanne Price, branch manager. What can I do for you? Well, I'm sorry. I I, I didn't... Uh... You didn't think a woman could ever achieve a position of responsibility, especially in such a stuffy field as money management. Believe me, I felt the same way. It's been a struggle. A depositor of yours, Mrs. Ellen Wilson, has been receiving cashier's checks drawn on this bank in the amount of $100 each month for the past four years. I'd like to know who's been sending them. Won't she tell you? Well, she doesn't know either. Does she object? Miss, uh, Mrs. Can't you just tell me who who's sending those checks? No, I'd like to. You have such an honest face. But I'm afraid even if I had that information, it would be confidential. Besides, I'm really only the hired help. I wouldn't have the authority to give it to you. Well, who would? The bank president, Mr. Lacey. Ah, well, may I talk to him? I don't think it'll do you any good. Why not? Mr. Lacey's a Scrooge, the tightest man on earth, with money and with words. Look, could you ask him if he'd see me, please? Don't hold your breath. Well? The sun sets in the east tonight. He'll see you. All the way at the back. Don't say anything, but I'm bucking for his job. <laughs> well, I hope you get it. Thank you very much. Mr. Lacey? I only let you in here to tell you face to face that what you're asking for is privileged information, and I demand to know what your authority is in seeking it and for what purpose. I have reason to believe the person signing those cashier checks may have committed murder. Certainly murder would be a matter for them. All right, Mr. Lacey, if you'd rather I take what I already know to the police... You're Carl Brooks. That's correct. Mm. Oh, Mr. Brooks, I'm not a rich man, despite what you may think. You knew Barry Wilson was innocent, didn't you? I don't know that. Is there reasonable doubt? Maybe. I've done nothing illegal. Well, somebody has. Someone killed Robert Henley for $150,000, some of which I think was yours, Mr. Lacey. You can't believe I'd kill a man for money. Well, you said yourself you're not a rich man. Now just a damn minute. Look, I'm only going to ask you one more time, Mr. Lacey, because if you don't tell me, I'll find out somewhere else. It may save us both a lot of unnecessary trouble, and it uh, might even make you feel better. Now, 
Do you know who is sending $100 cashier checks once a month to Ellen Wilson? No, I don't. And should you have any further inquiries into my personal affairs, Mr. Brooks, I suggest you make them through my attorney. Good day. Get me Judge Mercer's chambers immediately. Lacey was the kind of man who revealed more in a facial reaction than by anything he could have said. He was undoubtedly the third donor. Farris, Dr. Irwin, and Lacey. But who was the fourth? I left the bank and walked to my rented car. The tires were flat, all of them, slashed. I looked up and down the street. There was no sign of the big maroon car, but the meaning was clear. So I had to get to the Chronicle building right away. I had to get to Hugo Brownell. Oh, Hugo, you're here. Don't ask me why. I guess I'm just a sucker for nostalgia. Well, I wasn't sure if I'd make it. The word is out on me. What do you mean? Ferris had his boys cut up my tires on the car. I hitchhiked over here. Never thought you'd come. But, Carl, you're raving. Come on, you got me down here for a reason. Let's have it. Hugo, what do you know about a special campaign contribution fund to get Lloyd uh, Mercer elected to a second term as DA? Maybe I should ask what you know. Well, there was one, $150,000. And that's what Henley was carrying the night he was murdered. Can you prove it? Not only that, but I think I can prove who killed Henley. Who? Do you know? Well, I'm hoping you can remember. You've seen him. You may even know him. You lost me. Look, four people contributed to Mercer's special fund. It was Farris and Dr. Irwin, the president of the National City Bank, a man named Lacey. Mm-hmm. First name, Clarence. A big man in contract financing, bit on the shady side. That's only three. Well, there should be the name of a picture of the fourth somewhere in these files. Looks like a dick days to find. Well, not if you can remember. Remember what? Well, someone who was at Barry's trial, someone who was there every day... This is hopeless. Even if we find who you're looking for, we'd have to push to reopen the case. And you know whose court this is. We'd have a hell of a time trying to get anybody to confess. Uh, hold to on, him. hold on. I found something. What do you got? No, no. Do you have a, a magnifying glass or something like that? Yeah, there's one here somewhere. Uh-huh. Here. Ah, good. Okay, now look, look. Who is this man? Hmm? The one the one with his head down here in this picture and looking around in this one. Well, that's right. He was there just about every day. The uh, the paving contractor. Uh-huh. He used to do all the work for the city. Yeah, well, what's his name? Owen Morse. That's our man. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here. To this week's continuing study in suspense, Dead Man's Tale. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. 
Dead Man's Tale was written by Merwin Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis is Carl, Greg Stevens is Mercer, and Charles McGraw is Ferris. Featured in the cast are Jack Manning, Harold Gould, Herbert Jefferson Jr., and Shirley Mitchell. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been the J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Merwin Gerard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis, Craig Stevens, and Charles McGraw. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. was it that brought Carl Brooks back to his hometown? The gnawing guilt for having run from trouble? The love for a girl that he had but couldn't give with shadows on his conscience? Was it fate? In any case, he got more than he bargained for. His colleague and closest friend was dead, executed for a murder he could not have committed. To assuage his guilt, Carl Brooks took it upon himself to clear the name of the man he had failed to save and in doing so, has begun to uncover a most complicated series of events leading back to what really happened on a night four years before, the night Carl Brooks found an empty briefcase and a very quiet dead man. Dead Man's Tale will continue in a moment.
If Owen Morse was difficult to identify, locating him was next to impossible. His company was no longer in business and his family had moved out of town. Hugo, a friend indeed, lent me his car and promised to have some repairs made on my rented one. It was dusk by the time I found Owen Morse's new home address. It was way out on Briar Street, next to the edge of town. A run-down old house converted into a triplex. He lived on the ground floor. For a man I suspected had once contributed many thousands of dollars for some kind of political sway, Owen Morris was living somewhat less than modestly. Ah, Mr. Brooks, I've been waiting for you. Waiting? Waiting and watching. I knew you had to get to me sooner or later. And here you are. Come in, please. Thank you. Not exactly the kind of place you expected to find the ex-highly successful contractor living, is it? Sit down, Mr. Brooks. That chair is comfortable, despite its rather sad appearance. Excuse me, but uh, what did you mean, waiting and watching? Joe Ferris called to warn me you'd returned and what you're trying to do. I didn't tell him I was delighted and looking forward to your success in finally pulling the lid off the whole stinking mess. Wait a minute, I, I'm not sure I understand, Mr. Morris. If you're so anxious to have the truth known... Why didn't I come forward with it on my own? Yes. I've thought about it a great deal. It would accomplish very little, particularly since I couldn't prove any of it. But I wasn't speaking of the truth about me, my contribution to that ill-starred special fund for Lloyd Mercer's re-election... That I freely admit. However, it will do little to assist you in clearing Barry Wilson's name, which is what I assume is your purpose. It's a certainty you've been unable to accomplish your goal by speaking to the other three. How did you know about that? I've been following your efforts since yesterday. Oh. But I am curious. How did you get to me? I let your conscience be my guide. Ah, <laughs> yes. The cashier's check's... A shamefully insignificant contribution. Yes. The checks and the fact that you were at Barry's trial every day. I won't ask you why you didn't come forward then. I mean, that's obvious. Uh, painfully so. You see, Mr. Morris, Barry Wilson had one eyewitness to vouch for his innocence. That man was in California and couldn't be found. That would be you. That's correct. Painfully so. However, five men knew or had a pretty good idea what was in the briefcase Robert Henley had handcuffed to his wrist that night in the Delta Hotel. Mm. Barry Wilson was not one of them, nor was I. Yes. Yes, I see the point. But if I killed Robert Henley, Mr. Brooks, the solution would be easy. I could simply come forward, admit it, and clear up everything, including my conscience. Are you saying you didn't? I didn't kill Robert Henley. I killed Barry Wilson. So... I am a murderer. Would you be willing to tell your story to the newspapers? To the police? Oh, gladly. At the proper time. But that would be a serious tactical blunder right now. Get the wind up with Mercer and Ferris, and they'll go after you in any way they thought would discredit you. Or silence you permanently. And it'd be no help to Ellen Wilson. And that's all I give a damn about anymore. I have to admit that you've disarmed me. I, I anticipated some resistance, denials. That's what you would have gotten four years ago. What's changed? You've heard of the wages of sin. 
What you see before you is the end result of the erosion of conscience. I stood by like the others, in silence, while Barry Wilson was rushed to the gallows. But I've paid my dues, as they say. And, as you can see... Well, you must have been a rich man. What happened? No, never really rich. Well off, I guess. I wanted to be a business tycoon on the stock exchange and all that. I might have made it, only I went about it the wrong way. What happened was the bottle. It helped me forget one day at a time. I found I'd been an incipient alcoholic all my life. A year of steady drinking, lost weekends and then lost weeks and months can quickly destroy even a sound business. The downhill slide is swift and accelerating. First my business and then my family. But the guilt doesn't go away. On the contrary, it grows. It grows until the reason for it is rectified. Uh, Mr. Morris, who killed Robert Henley? I have no idea. I have nothing. My, my whole life is an utter waste of time. And why go on? You know, you sound like you could drink yourself to death if you tried. Mr. Brooks, you see before you a gutless, impotent man. I've been on the wagon for two years now, so I could hold down a job to make just enough to stay alive and send a few dollars to the woman I made a widow. Mr. Morse, there seems to be more than enough guilt to go around for all of us. Speaking for myself, I'm willing to risk all to clear the slate, but I'm going to need your help. You can count on me, Mr. Brooks. You can count on me. I left Morse my number at the hotel in the event he had to reach me. I was disappointed that my theory about him had been wrong. But a man like that needed no assistance in inflicting self-punishment. Hugo wasn't at the office when I called, so I left a message for him not to print anything yet and that I'd be in touch. Though as of the moment, I was no further along in clearing Barry than when I had first started. It all added up to one big zero. Somehow, I had the feeling something was missing. Like the slush fund. Something obvious. I drove Hugo's car back to the Delta to see if I had any messages. It was a misty night, but not cool. I looked up into the sky, and the moon was barely a sliver. The stars, invisible. I tried to locate my room from the street below by counting it from the corner. I counted again. No mistake. That was my room with the lights on and the curtains puffed out the open window. I ran to the lobby. The desk clerk was nowhere in sight. I got out on the fourth floor and took the stairs up one flight. The hall was clear. There was a crack of light between the bottom of the door and the carpet. I listened. Then, carefully, took out my key and slipped it in the lock. And... All right. What? Jenny.
It was a toss-up as to who scared who more. Seeing Jenny there in my room was both a relief and an obstacle. I hadn't realized how much I had missed her, and yet she could only make matters more difficult by being so close. But I hid my ambivalence as best I could, and we spent the night together. In the morning, we had room service under breakfast. It was then that I explained the situation. So that's about how it stands at this point, Jen. Come home, Carl, please. You've done what you came for. You're a free man. If it was only so simple. Jenny, you, you have no idea what effect this has had on the lives of so many people. All right, but what about us, our lives? Suppose you do find out who killed that man. Then what? Well, that's most of what I have to do. There's more? Carl, you're driving yourself... Barry's dead, but his family lives on. You mean his wife and child, don't you? Uh, Ellen, isn't that her name? Just some kind of benefits. I, I mean, a fun for Katie. Something. Carl, are you telling me everything? I don't know everything. I mean about Ellen. What does she want from you? <laughs> well, I suppose at this point she probably wants me to die or disappear. She's bitter, Jenny, and I don't blame her. She and I were close once. We, we were just kids. I was best man at a wedding. Oh, Carl... It hurts me to see you like this. I came here to comfort you, to be with you. I know you didn't want me here, but I, I had to see you. Look, I'll go back to Coulter today if it's really what you want. Oh, if I had a choice, Jenny, if I was really free... Oh, please, don't say anything. I'll call the airport. I'll get it. No, don't. Hello? Oh, yes, he's here. Uh, hello. Hello, Judge. I'm just fine. How are you these days? Oh, you'd like to reconvene our discussion from the other night? Or just say when? In your chambers? Very good, Judge. I'll be there. Carl, what's wrong? Why didn't you want me to answer the phone? Are you in trouble? Uh, look, I um, I have to meet with Judge Mercer about some, some dirty laundry. I'll, I'll be back this afternoon. We'll grab a bite and then I'll drive you to the airport. All right? Don't worry, Jenny. Remember, I love you. See you later. Uh, Carl, please be careful. I must see you about a matter of considerable importance, Lloyd Mercer had told me over the phone. The wheels were turning and I was botching up the mechanism. There wasn't much doubt as to what Mercer wanted to talk about. It was the particulars that aroused my curiosity. He was waiting for me in his chambers, all decked out in official garb. Come in, Carl. Good of you to drop by. You look very spiffy in your robes, Mr. Mercer. Judge. Sit down, Carl. Uh, can I get you something? No, thank you. I only drink socially. Uh, really, Carl? So hostile. Uh, Carl, a matter of what I feel significant importance has been brought to my attention. A matter that concerns me, Your Honor? We've received some new information on the Henley murder. It points rather definitely towards your culpability. Oh, really? Apparently, there was an eyewitness. Someone saw me kill Henley? Uh, not actually performing the act. Uh, let, me, let me guess. This eyewitness was Joseph Farris. Splendid conjecture. He was out of town during the trial, and since I was the district attorney, he told me what he knew. Still, I couldn't believe that you'd killed Henley, and I, I told him so. Your faith in me is nothing short of overwhelming, but 
What suddenly changed your mind? Carl, you were a fugitive. A cogent fact relating to your guilt if, of course, the case is reopened. If? Well, it's impossible to prosecute a man who can't be found. You know that as well as the next fugitive. What if I stay? Well, you could try to save yourself. Discrediting you would be ridiculously easy and very likely prove to be a political bonanza for me. Anyone knows a man accused of murder is liable to say anything to save your skin. And the voters have a ready sympathy for public servants unjustly attacked. Same old song, just different lyrics. I'd love to vocalize, Your Honor, but... I thought you were smarter than that, Carl. I'm a much older hand at this sort of thing than you. A point well taken. I have a full calendar today, so I'm afraid you must be going. In parting, let me say, if you're still in the jurisdiction of this state tomorrow morning, be prepared to remain here, behind bars, for the rest of your life. I knew if it ever came down to a test of strength between Mercer and me on his home grounds, I'd have no chance at all. Knowing Mercer, he could make a pretty good case for complicity between Barry and me to rob and murder Henley. Again, Mercer would come up smelling like a rose, and he had the savvy and muscle to make it stick. I still had that nagging suspicion of something right in front of my eyes that I wasn't seeing. But first, there was another fish to fry. As it was... The skillet was hot and greased and ready for me. To catch the fish was the real problem, that and bait. Oh, that's crazy. That's suicide. Either way, it gives you something to print, an expose, or an obituary. Baiting Ferris like that is just asking for it. He digged the river to throw your body in, lead shoes and all. It's my funeral. Look, you go. Ferris killed Henley, or had him killed... Setting yourself up this way isn't going to prove anything, Carl. It will if he tries it again and misses, and somebody's there to see him, like a reporter. Mm -mm, sorry, I don't want any part of this scheme. Hugo, Mercer's trying to chase me out. He thinks I know too much. Don't go after Mercer, Carl. That's really suicide. All I'm after is the truth. I want to be able to sleep at night. Keep this up and you'll sleep forever. Look, I'm going through with it, Hugo. I'll ask you again when the time comes. Carl? I got your car keys. Yeah, forgot. Thanks. Unlike most night spots, the Ferris wheel looked plush even by day. Joe Ferris was finishing a late lunch on his private patio upstairs when I arrived. How about a spot of coffee, Brooks? No, thanks. I can't believe you dropped in just to say goodbye. Who's leaving? Yeah, I figured you'd be dumb enough to stick around. Mercer says you'd testify against me in court, but I have my doubts. The sword cuts two ways, and you know it. <laughs> you got to be the cutest guy in town, Brooks. If you saw me in Henley's room, I saw you. The next obvious question would have to be, what were you doing there? I will have a lawyer, of course, and there has to be a complete trial even in this state. With Mercer in my corner, I'll, I'll take my chances. I don't think you're going to let it come to that. I've got everything just about together now. All the details of who contributed to that fund for Mercer and uh, 
what each of you were buying. You're bluffing. Am I? How do the names Clarence Lacey, Owen Morris, and Frank Irwin grab you? You have been busy. But all they can supply is talk, no proof. Enough talk to blow your sweet setup in this town sky high. And when I complete the angle I'm working on, I'll have enough evidence to pin Henley's murder on you and make it stick. <laughs> You're cute, all right, Brooks, but not very bright. Maybe not. But I suggest you talk to the judge and tell him your eyesight isn't what it used to be. I'd think about it if I were you, Farris, or... Or what, punk? I'll see you in court. Now the hook was baited. I just had to hope that the fish wouldn't strike before I was ready. I drove back to the hotel to get Jenny. I had to put her on a plane before the fireworks started. I parked the car and walked along the same sidewalk as the night before. As I looked up towards my window again, I practically fell over a group of workmen sitting along the side of the building. You better watch where you're going, buddy. You might hurt yourself. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. I'm sorry. At the desk, I stopped to see if I had any messages. There were two. One that Dr. Irwin phoned and left his number for me to call back. And the other was a note from Jenny. Dear Carl... I didn't want to make things harder for you than they already are, so I'm saying goodbye to you this way. I've taken a taxi to the airport and will be in Coulter sometime tonight. Don't worry about anything, darling. I understand what you have to do here. I'll be waiting for you when you come home. Love, Jenny. Somehow, that was wrong. Uh, Jenny's note. Something about it. I, I couldn't quite pin it down, but, but it bothered me. Was it about this whole thing I wasn't seeing? Henley's room, for one. Where did I go after I slugged Ferris? Let me see. I ran out the door. This way. The stairs. Let's see. I ran down the stairs. To here, then, uh, see, I, I turned this way, but, but if I, I'd gone straight. Hey, here comes the bird watcher. <laughs> what, what's this? Where am I? You want I should get you a map? This is the boiler room. You took another wrong turn, buddy. Can't let you out this way. Airport. I'd like to page Miss Jenny Duncan, please. Paging Jenny Duncan. Miss, Miss, uh, when's the next flight to San Francisco? 9.15, sir. Tonight? 9.15 tomorrow morning. Well, when did the last flight leave? 9.15. There's only that one flight daily, sir. They've got Jenny. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. 
Dead Man's Tale. I'm Rod Serling, and this is the Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Dead Man's Tale was written by Merwin Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis is Carl, Craig Stevens is Mercer, and Charles McGraw is Ferris. Featured in the cast are Olin Soleil, Anne Marshall, and Herbert Jefferson, Jr., Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Merwin Girard's study of a man pursued. Dead Man's Tale. Starring George Maharis, Craig Stevens, and Charles McGraw. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Four years since Carl Brooks ran from the Delta Hotel after finding an empty briefcase and a dead man. In the interim, he fashioned a new life in a new town and met a girl he liked to marry. But then he returned to discover his best friend had been executed by the state for the murder. And nothing was right. Things were not as they should have been. Nobody seemed to care that two innocent men were dead. Perhaps because life goes on.
But for Carl Brooks, life cannot go on this way. He wants to know why it has. And the more he learns, the more obstacles he meets, the closer he comes to the truth, the more dangerous things become for him. And yet he goes on. Even though for Carl Brooks, the price for uncovering the whole truth may well be his life. The conclusion of Dead Man's Tale coming up after this word. It was the note from Jenny that first made me suspect something was wrong. The phone call to the airport was really just a reaction. Loose ends, bits, pieces, and hunches. Once a lawyer, always a lawyer, I supposed. I sat in the phone booth just staring at the dial for quite some time. My mind was swimming, and for a moment, I was Charles Barrows again, back in Coulter, by the lake, walking arm in arm with Jenny. Then I looked away and saw the reflection in the glass door of Carl Brooks and Caden careening back to reality. Jenny's note and the message to call Dr. Irwin. County General Hospital. Dr. Frank Irwin, please. Dr. Irwin is recovering from an accident and cannot be disturbed. We're referring his calls to Dr. Daniels. Uh, look, you, you don't understand. I'm returning his call. I'm sorry, sir. Dr. Irwin is asleep. Could you call back in the morning? Look, this is an emergency. I'm sorry, sir. Doctor is ill. Call in the morning. Damn. Hugo. Carl, where are you? They've snatched Jenny. Who? Jenny. Who's Jenny? Didn't I tell you? Jenny's the girl I met in California. Hugo, she, she's why I came back. I mean, she's my new life. She came into town last night and was going to fly back tonight, hey, but hey, I... Hey, oh, oh, hold on, slow down. You lost me. Well, but they know she's here. I, I'm sure it's a ploy to get rid of me before... Carl, will you calm down? <sighs> all right, all right. Now, what I can make of your babbling, you, uh, you think Ferris kidnapped Jenny in order to flush you out, right? Right, that's right. Wrong. And I'll tell you why. If Ferris had her, I'd know about it. I've got every informer in town reporting in on the hour, and no one said a word about a woman. This is the first I've heard of her. Believe me, Carl, you've got enough real troubles without making up others. She's around. She'll show up. And if I were you, I'd stay put. Mercer and Ferris are in conference right now. But I have to get the county general. What's up? I don't know, but I have a feeling the whole ball game's on the line. Well, you better get going. It's the bottom of the ninth. If I was ever going to run, now would be the time. I tried to believe what Hugo said about Jenny, but I couldn't shake her disappearance from my mind. I left word at the desk to reroute any calls to me to the Chronicle City Desk. I got as far as the corridor in the hospital before a nurse stopped me. Uh, just where do you think you're going? I have to see Dr. Irwin. Keep your voice down. People are sleeping. Visiting hours are over. Look, a man's life is at stake. I'm sorry. Hospital regulations. But Dr. Irwin, what are you doing out of bed? I want to see that man. But, Doctor... I take full responsibility, nurse. Well, I guess it's all right. But please get back into bed. Hey, Mr. Brooks, come on in. Thank you, nurse. Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks, I'm I'm a troubled man. Well, 
What is it, Doctor? Well, it's about Ellen Wilson. Go on. Ellen's been like a daughter to Edna and me. We we were never blessed with children of our own. Well, I, I worry about her, you know. Like a father worries about his little girl. And Katie, well, she's my little sugar plum. She tells me how she wishes I were her grandpa. You see, Ellen's parents are... Well, they're not the nicest people. Well, to get to the point, Mr. Brooks, I called Ellen this morning to see how she was feeling. She said she was very upset about the trouble you were making for them, and she was sending Katie away to stay with her parents for a while. Now, Mr. Brooks, I'm... I'm afraid what I have to tell you now may cause me to break another oath. The confidence between physician and patient... What Dr. Irwin told me not only broke an oath, but broke the ice around my frozen memory. I was so close to feeling free once and for all, but there were still things to check out, and one very important locked door yet to be opened. I had been spotted. The chase was on. I pushed the accelerator to the floor and drove for all I was worth. I had to get to the busy, well-lit street so I'd never have a chance to prove what I knew. The neon sign atop the Chronicle building loomed up ahead. If I could only make it. I looked in the rearview mirror and the car following me was gone. Vanished. I parked the car right out in front. The big glass doors were unlocked with no guard in sight. I made a beeline for the city desk. Yes? Where's Hugo? We just ran out not five minutes ago. Oh, well, where did he go? He didn't say. Well, he must have said something. I mean, he just wouldn't take off like a bat out of hell. Well, pardon my asking, but who are you? Brooks. Carl Brooks. Why? I thought that's who you were. Mr. Brownell described you as a very nervous 28-year-old man. Oh. I fit the description, don't I? You're the only one I'm to give this message to. It says, Carl, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Just got a call from Jenny Duncan. It seemed like every time I tied off a loose end, it knotted up. There was a question mark at the end of each answer. One more hunch. A faint recollection needed satisfaction. I had to get into the newspaper morgue just once more. Surely the woman at the city desk was most cordial, but had no access to the files. Nobody on the night shift could get them but Hugo. And Hugo was gone, ostensibly to locate Jenny. His cryptic message did nothing to make me any less nervous, but he may have had a reason to prevent me from leaving the safety of the building. He knew I'd follow if I knew where he'd gone. I took it all to mean that the summit conference between Mercer and Farris was over and war had been declared on Carl Brooks. I couldn't bring myself to sit it out. I was wearing out the linoleum in the city room when Shirley put down her magazine. Uh, would you like some coffee, Mr. Brooks? Uh, no, no, thanks. I could send out for a sandwich from the diner. Look, I'm, I'm really not hungry. Or would you like to look at a magazine? Oh, oh, I know. There's a stack of old newspapers behind Mr. Brownell's desk that you might enjoy reading. What did you say? 
I said this is a stack of old newspapers behind Mr. Brownell's... But this is it. This is what I came for. That's what I thought. I just wasn't sure. Did you find something, Mr. Brooks? Shirley, I wonder if you'd do me a favor? Certainly. Lend me your car for just one hour. The guard was at his station by the glass doors downstairs. We exchanged bewildered looks as I left. If I was followed to the Delta Hotel, somebody did a good job of keeping out of sight. I slipped through the crowded lobby into the elevator and rode up. To the fifth floor. Down the corridor, to the door to my room, and beyond, until I got to the locked door outside what used to be room 515. If only I could get inside. Robert Henley's old room was filled with furniture. Desks piled atop one another, chairs dressing tables, rolled carpets. I blinked furiously as the dust rose from the floor, and I I tried to remember how it was, how it had been that fateful night four years ago. Where in this room, under all this, would someone hide $150,000? Again, I recreated that horrible night, but this time in slow motion. Whatever it was... I had missed it before. I closed the door to 515, walked down the hallway and opened the door to the stairwell. Ten sets of switchback stairs, two sets per floor. Nothing but concrete. Then the turn towards the lobby and... and here I am. What is it? Where is it? Of course, of course. The desk clerk was most cooperative. Fifty dollars was a cheap price to pay for what I had found. A positive proof to set me free at last. But it didn't last long. I started the car, and the moment I pulled away from the curb, I had company again. I got a good look this time. It was a pickup truck with a single hatless man inside. From the angle of the headlights, I could tell this was my vanishing friend. Then, coming from the other direction, the big maroon touring car. I made a hard turn onto the frontage road leading to the residential track homes. The pickup made the turn, but the big car missed it. I was nearing my destination when... No, I can't be out of gas. Come on, Brooks. Get in. Hurry! Owen Morris. Morris, what the hell are you doing out here? I said you can count on me, remember? Tonight? At the hospital? At the first time you saw me? You mean you've been following me? Most of two days. Oh, you better tell me where we're going. We're not the only ones on the road. Bonsdale Lane. You know where it is? Ought to. I paved the road. Hang on. Helen Wilson's, right? Right. 
That's it, the one with the tall grass. This is going to be close. Well, then, we've got to get to the house. Looks like the string's finally run out. It follows a pattern. There's no avoiding it. What? It's only a matter of time. You can run away or try to escape inside yourself. Boss, will you stay back? They won't shoot unless they're sure we're here. You can't run forever. And if you turn it inside, you end up on the slide. Either way, it's the same thing. So the faster you get there, the better. Get back. I'm cold, Brooks. My teeth are chattering. Here, here. Take my coat. Thank you. <sighs> Pretty good fit. Please, keep still. I'm counting on you, Morse. I know. That's why I've got to do this. Morse, no! Wait, come back here! Carl, Carl! It had to come to this. I saw the whole thing. You'll never get away with it. Who is this man? Jenny. Jenny, I was worried sick. Carl. That's Owen Morse. They thought... Well, it's obvious what they thought. They got the wrong man. So that about does it. And these killers struck once too often. Forgive me for lying to you, Carl. I had to speak to Ellen about us. I tried to reach you. Sorry it took me so long to get here. Yeah, where were you? I got a flat tire. Came right off the rim. At least I got the story. Well, don't put your pencil away just yet, Hugo. I'll get coffee. Uh, no, Ellen. I want you to hear this. I want you all to hear what really happened four years ago. All right. Shoot. Okay. Farris found me in Henley's room just after I discovered the body. He accused me of murder and asked me where the money was. Well, that's typical to frame you. No. He really believed it. I panicked and hit him and then ran down the stairs to the lobby. Henley's killer used those same stairs to escape. So Ferris could have done it and come back up in time to find you in the room. He could have. It was Ferris, right? Wrong, Hugo, and I'll tell you why. At that time, Ferris, Mercer, and three others knew there'd be money in that room. Well, the other contributors? Morse, Lacey, and Irwin? Not those three. They knew about the money, but not where it was or who had it. Oh, well, Mercer was at uh, election headquarters that night. I know. Mercer never saw the money. Someone else knew Henley was carrying $150,000... It was so obvious that no one even thought of suspecting him. Who, Carl? Henley. Well, Henley didn't kill himself. Mercer gave me the idea this morning when he threatened to prosecute me for conspiring with Barry to rob and kill Henley. Complicity. Henley didn't kill himself, and he couldn't rob himself either. He had to have told someone, someone he knew. Henley was from out of state. He was chosen for the job because he had no connections with anyone. No visible connections with anyone. That's what made it so hard to figure out, even though it's obvious who it was. Who was it? Barry Wilson. Are you saying Barry did kill Henley? The killer was still in the building the whole time I was, on the same stairs I ran down on my way to the lobby. You mean you went right by him? No, the stairs go further. He was waiting below, by the boiler room, by an exit I didn't know existed until later. But you saw him arrive when you were leaving. When I left the hotel, I did see Barry, but I didn't see him arrive. He was running down the sidewalk along the west wing of the building at about the spot where the door by the boiler room opens. That's incredible. That's ridiculous. That's what happened, although it wasn't part of the original plan. Henley and Barry had it all set up. Barry was to go to the hotel room, tie up Henley, make it look like a robbery, and hide the money to be split later when things cooled off. 
Mercer almost blew the whole thing by sending me to pick up the documents. Barry lessened in on the intercom, and that's when he decided to cross Henley. I'd be the perfect alibi, and the obvious suspect, not only for robbery, but first-degree murder. And it would have worked if you hadn't run. Not quite. What Barry didn't plan on was the fact that Henley crossed him, too. Hey, you lost me. Henley and Barry were acquaintances, but they never really trusted each other. There was too much at stake. Henley was well prepared for a double cross. Eh, obviously not well enough. He never had a chance to use what he had, or rather, didn't have. What are you talking about? The money. There never was any money up in that room. The briefcase was empty when Barry broke it open. You mean there was no money? None. None that Barry ever saw. Five people knew there was money, who had it, and where it was supposed to be. Farris, Mercer, Henley, Barry, and one other person. Yeah, but who else could have known? The only person who knew both Barry and Henley. The only person who went back to the boiler room to look for the money where Barry was supposed to have hidden it. But it wasn't there. Was it, Ellen? No, it wasn't. I never saw a penny of it. It was all for nothing. How did you find out? Well, I needed help. I spoke to Dr. Irwin this evening. There was something else Barry didn't know. Dr. Irwin told you. Well, he didn't mean to give you away. He was only concerned about you and Katie. Hey, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Ellen, you tell him. It's your story. The whole truth came out that evening. I had asked Dr. Irwin more about Katie's grandparents. If he didn't approve of Ellen's parents, surely Barry's folks were nice enough. That was when the doctor revealed to me what even Barry didn't know. Since Barry's death, Ellen had refused to allow Katie to visit the Wilsons. When I asked the doctor why, he told me there was no way Barry could have been Katie's father. He was sterile. That led me back to the newspaper accounts on the trial. While looking through the files with Hugo for the fourth contributor, I read something about Henley's hometown, a small hamlet in Indiana. It hadn't occurred to me that it was the same town where Ellen Upshaw had come from years ago, and the very same town where Barry and Ellen used to go on vacations before Katie was born. It just took a little while to make the connection. Then, the final proof, the money. And that was the most obvious thing of all. Where would someone in, in a hotel keep $150,000 in cash? The 50 I'd laid on the desk clerk brought me access to the hotel safe where I found a four-year-old package and a notarized letter that was, in effect, a man's will. It read, If this package is not claimed within 30 days, the contents shall be used to establish a fund to be dispersed on the 21st birthday of my daughter, Catherine Wilson. It was signed... Robert L. Henley. Jenny and I caught the morning flight to the coast. Late that afternoon, we drove to the lake. Carl, what's going to happen to Ellen Wilson now? Well, Hugo didn't print the story. It wouldn't serve any purpose. Farris will be put away for the murder of Owen Morse. What about Mercer? As usual, Mercer's in the clear... He judged Barry as guilty for all the wrong reasons, but he did convict the right man. So I guess they'll all live happily ever after. Bet you can't throw a pebble through the ring. Bet I can. 
see. Mm-hmm. Here. Try this ring. Oh, Carl. I've been holding on to it for months. Don't you think it's time we made it official? That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour, Merwin Girard's Dead Man's Tale. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. You've been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Dead Man's Tale was written by Merwin Gerard and Kim Weisskopf. George Maharis was Carl. Craig Stevens was Mercer. And Charles McGraw was Ferris. Featured in the cast were Sandra Gould, Herbert Jefferson Jr., Harold Gould, Barbara Luddy, Olin Soleil, Anne Marshall, and Angela Cartwright. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. <laughs> <laughs>